I really miss being here for the last couple of weeks. Thank you so much, David. I've been traveling the last two weeks. I was in Florida, I was in St. Louis, visiting communities. There was a little bit of an intense conference for Jews here in New York that was sandwiched in between something called Limud, New York. It was a little bit small conference for about a thousand Jews in between. And with all of my traveling, all of it, it wasn't keeping up with everything that was happening here in this growing, alive, dynamic community. I was a little bit behind. So as my, as my travels came to a close on Wednesday morning, I found myself in an airport in St. Louis thinking, I have two hours on the plane to catch up. I was gonna relax, put on a little bit of music, get some emails done, maybe connect with my own breathing for five minutes. But God didn't have that in order for me, or the universe, or whatever you call it. Something happened. I'm online, and I'm walking towards the, the head of the line, and, and I see a guy, and I'm thinking, here we go. Eli Ram was right behind me, and so clearly an Israeli from Jerusalem, with a beard and a baseball hat just like this rabbi. So I sheepishly said, Shalom. <laughs> Eli Ram said, Shalom. Before we knew it, we were sitting on the plane next to one another and we were exchanging backgrounds, surprised to hear that I was a rabbi who had gone to ultra-Orthodox yeshivot, and now what was I doing exactly? And we had gone to the same yeshivot, we knew the same, we did the whole Jewish geography thing. Oh, you went to BMT, I knew Rabbi Benny, what an amazing tzaddik, and I went to Chaim Berlin, we were just trading all of our Jewish resume. And what was amazing to me was we, we got into a deep conversation as only two people like that on a plane back from St. Louis could get into. We weren't remotely similar in our religious worldview. We didn't have even the remote similarity in our understanding of spiritual life. Because Eli Ram kept asking me one question. He said, but is it true? <laughs> is it true? It's all I want to know. Is that the truth? Is religious life predicated on an assumption, the spiritual life, that there is something there, there, and that I'm doing it for that? Is it obligatory? Is it physical? What is it? What do you think, David? He kept saying to me. Does the great truth need our gestures and our structures? This week in Parshat Titzaveh, tomorrow morning, we'll read continuing the tabernacle project, the Mishkan, relaying the details of the magnificent priestly garments. There'll be details about the priestly Ouija board. People have heard of the Ouija board. They're called the Urim Vitumim. Questions were asked of the high priest, and he had a light-up board called the Urim Vitumim. There was an incense altar, a Mizbach or Mizbeach Shelktoret, and the beginning of the Parsha, though, the beginning of the Parsha is amazing. The first sentence is all you need. 
את בני ישראל, ויקחו אליך שמן זית זך כתית למאור, להעלות ניר תמיד, שא זה תורה. And now command the Israelites to bring to you pure olive oil, crushed intentionally for the sake of lighting, to raise up a perpetual flame. Many of you are familiar with the Nir Tamid, right? The Nir Tamid, the eternal flame. We have one here. It's, it's on. <laughs> Not always, but it's on. <laughs> This instruction of the Nir Tamid is unlike any other instruction in the Torah. Let me tell you why. God speak to Moshe in a way that he doesn't speak to Moshe in any other place in the Torah. There's no, and God spoke to Moses saying, it begins, and now you. Can everybody say that? One more time. It means, and now, hey, you. Where's the Vayomer Adonai El Moshe and God spoke to Moses saying, which is the usual formula of giving instruction to the Israelites here. It just begins mid-sentence. Hey, you, Amy. Doesn't even say Amy. That's the second perplexion. Moses is not mentioned once in tomorrow morning's Parsha. No other Parsha in all of the book of Exodus or in the book of Leviticus or in the book of Numbers. Nowhere else is Moshe's name removed, censored out. Where is Mo, where did Mo go? <laughs> you know what else is odd about this verse? It says, let them bring the olive oil to Elecha means, Elecha means to you. So God says, hey you, let them bring the olive oil to you, Elecha. Let me tell you something folks, in the tabernacle, The tabernacle was built, as Rabbi Jessica said last week, as a pied de terre for God. <laughs> It is God's second home. We are told, <laughs> Bring for me, God says, bring for me the offerings. The tabernacle is not a lecha to you, Moses, but it is to me. Let them bring to me the olive oil. Very odd. Whose mitzvah is this? Where is Moshe? Why isn't Moshe's name mentioned? And I think at the heart of this question is the heart of Eliram's interrogation of my religiosity of, to a certain extent, liberal spirituality. The Midrash says that when God says to Moses, without mentioning his name, without any reference, just you, let them bring olive oil, and let it be Eilecha to you. The Midrash famously writes, Do I need the light of the menorah? Do I need it? Is it for me, God says in the Midrash? But to purify you, to merit you. The religious imperative is, right, here's the Midrash. Do I need your light? Does the one who created the sun need your candles, said the Midrash? Does the one who brought forth light from darkness at the time of creation need your light? Does the one who created the human eye with black and white, but had us see through the black, the dark, need your light? But rather for you, for your betterment, for your evolution, for you to love 
one another. Sometimes we feel crushed. Sometimes the world weighs us down. Sometimes we feel like that olive. We wonder, is God, is spirit, is karma, is the world, are circumstances moving in such a way to bring forth light for me? Is there light in here? What is this for? And along come our spiritual practices and say, even when you don't feel it, especially when you don't know why something is happening, there is an elecha, there is a, a quality of this is for me to lift up. There are times where we wonder if our metaphysical or theological or spiritual structures make any sense. Those times are very difficult. Traveling around the country, more often than not, someone will say to me, Rabbi, how am I supposed to believe in God when I'm suffering so much? How am I supposed to have light when I feel so dark? And I think the Torah and the Midrash are saying something very powerful tonight. Spiritual practices like meditation, like yoga, like coming to shul are not for God. They're to give us a vehicle, a vessel in which for us to some degree to have the light, to have the faith. And the biggest key, the biggest key, is that the great rabbi Harold Schulweis once said, heard this from Rabbi Ed Feinstein, it matters not whether you can pray to God, but whether God can move through you. And when Rabbi Ed Feinstein told this to me in St. Louis, he taught all of us there a practice. He said, after every prayer, say out loud, through me. Just those words. Can everybody say that? Through me. So a prayer. Blessed are you, source of all life, who opens the eyes of the blind through me. Blessed are you, source of life, who gives hearing to those who can't hear through me. Blessed are you, source of all life, who invites us into Shabbat in order to rest, in order to find sacred sanctity through me. The purpose of religious practice is deeply humanistic. Your metaphysical structures don't matter. They might. Who knows? But the purpose of spiritual practice is that we become the hands, the feet, the entire structure of the divine in the world. Maybe I don't believe in you, God, but you know something? I believe in godliness. Maybe I don't always feel the light, but I want to bring light. Maybe I don't always know the truth, but I want to be truthful. We want God to move through us because it is only through us that the world becomes the place where God's presence can be made manifest. So I would say to my friend from Israel, I don't know if it's true, but it's holy. I don't know if it's true, but it's holy because it only happens through these hands, through me, God. Let it be. Many years ago in a small village, there lived Reb Chaim, who was the richest man in the village, and Reb Yankel, who was the poorest man in the village. 
Every Friday evening, Reb Chaim would come to the synagogue. He would set up his spot. He would have his nice fur hat on, and he would get there early. He would exchange greetings with everybody in the shul. Hi, good Shabbos, good Shabbos, good Shabbos, good Shabbos, good Shabbos. Hi, 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 hi. He would settle down. Shabbos service would be over. Reb Chaim, the richest man of the town, would rise up, and he would walk up the hill back to his big, beautiful mansion. He would enter his home, and he would say, good Shabbos to everyone, and he would sit down at a table fit for a king. Oh, Reb Chaim would sit, he would be surrounded by the finest china, the flatware, the crystal. He would be served the most remarkable Shabbos meal, accompanied by the sweetest, most heavenly challah. But none of this brought Reb Chaim any joy. You know why? Because he was alone. Reb Chaim was alone at his table, and so all of the golden platters and the wonderful dishes, they didn't mean much before him. But one Shabbos, as he was sitting in front of this huge buffet for Shabbat, he thought to himself, who could I possibly spend this exalted, wonderful, exquisite, delicious, holy Shabbat with? Who would be deserving of such an incredible repast? God. I'm going to invite God to a meal, he thought to himself. He had a plan. He brought in his baker. He had his baker bake all of these beautiful halot, two warm halot. He tucked them under his talit, and he started walking to shul. He got to shul. He came over to the ark, placed them in the ark, settled on the side wall, and waited. Now, this Rabiankel, the poorest man in the town, hmm, not so good. He came to shul but it hadn't been a good week. He was in a bad mood. He had had a bad month, a bad year, a bad season. His family had less and less to eat with each week, and tonight he couldn't even bring himself to face his children and his wife without anything to put on their empty table. So he sat in the synagogue until everyone cleared out of the synagogue, and there he was. And when he was alone, he approached the Holy Ark like our dear Reb Yitzchak, unabashedly, and threw himself in front of the ark and said, Dear God, I am hungry tonight. And as he opened the ark, two warm chalot dropped out. He thought, a miracle! It's a miracle! Unbelievable. He ran home and he placed the chalas on his table and his wife. They were astounded. A miracle from God, the holy Chalot of Rabbi Yankala. They ate, they celebrated. There was no greater joy that Friday night than they had ever experienced in their life. And this continued the following week. And by that point, the rich Reb Chaim thought, wow, a miracle is happening. Reb Yankala thought, a miracle is happening. God is eating my chalot. God is giving me chalot. God is eating my chalot. God is giving me chalot. <laughs> Master of the world, Reb Chaim stood before the ark and said, you must have enjoyed those chalot. You didn't even leave a crumb. <laughs> as luck would have it, or fate, one particular evening, as this had gone on for about a year, the sexton, the shamus, happened to be watching this scene unfold. Reb Chaim leaving the chalot, Reb Yankala taking the chalot, and the sexton went over and said, my dear man, don't you understand? Rav Chaim is leaving those chalot for you.
Unbelievable. So crazy. They were brought to the great mystic of the town, the great rabbi, who said to the sexton, I want to tell you something. You have committed a great sin. You have committed a great sin. He said to him, shaking his head, I had a terrible dream last night and God was terribly angry. He was ready to destroy the world because something precious and holy had been destroyed. I pleaded with God to repair the damage before the world was destroyed. The rabbi looked at Reb Chaim, your gifts did reach God. And do you know what joy God took from them? Reb Yankel, what you found each Shabbat, it also did come from God. And do you know that your children's songs reach higher than the songs of the angels? Did you know that this miracle had been foreseen since the creation of the world? It was God's special joy to see it renewed each week. And if only the miracle had continued, and only when it is, will God let the world exist Looking at each other for the first time, Reb Chaim and Reb Yankel knew what they had to do. The following Friday night, instead of opening the doors of the ark to his chalas, Reb Chaim opened the doors of his home to the family of Reb Yankel. And in turn, the children of Reb Yankel's family filled the rooms of Reb Chaim's once lonely and empty mansion on Shabbos. Once again, in Reb Chaim's world, there was song and spirit. And these two repaired what had been broken. As for the shamus, that sexton who spoiled the fun, legend has it that his punishment was to leave the village and spend the rest of his days wandering around the earth. And wherever he found Jews who were making Shabbat, he told them the story of Chaim and Yankel. When he died, his children continued to tell the story. And when they died, their children told the story and so on until every Jew in every corner of the world heard about Chaim and Yankel's deal. And now you've heard this story too tonight. Religion, spiritual practice, is sharing challah with someone who doesn't have it. Religion, spiritual practice is not to Moses, so his name is left out, but to you and to you and to you. God doesn't use Moses' name because he's not speaking to Moses. He's speaking to me and to you and to every one of us. He's saying, hey, you, ve'ata, remember that, ve'ata, as for you, you all, you need to make the world full of light. If God isn't in you, then let God be through you. When God's in you, also through you. So I want to bless each and every one of you tonight. I don't have a particular tikkun other than to say, if religion, if spirituality were to teach us one thing in the world, it would be beyond all of the rituals, beyond all of these conversations between those who say and those who don't, there's the simple intimacy of baking challah for each other. May God bless each and every one of us with the ability to find out that place where God wants to move through us, to find those places where it is indeed necessary. If we do it that way, I promise to go back to my friend who is now safely in Israel, who will be coming back to New York, and I'll say to him, you know what, 
I don't know if it's true. Would you like some challah? <laughs>